In the New York Times best-selling novel, Olga Dies Dreaming, we are brought into the world of champagne wishes and caviar dreams. Olga Acevedo is a wedding planner whose keen eye for detail and savviness fuels her superpower to create the most beautiful weddings for New York's elite. While she spends her time helping others take a new step into love, Olga struggles to find her footing. On this episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast, we talk to the hilarious debut author, Sochil Gonzalez, about the creation of her novel and her undying love for Brooklyn. So don't go away. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. everybody welcome back to a very special episode of the vulgar geniuses podcast we're joined uh with a very special guest in celebration of our two-year anniversary and this wonderful book we are talking to writer Sochil Gonzalez Uh, Sochil has an MFA from the University of Iowa Writers Workshop where she was an Iowa Arts Fellow. She was the winner of the 2019 Disquiet Literary Prize and her work has been published in Bustle, Vogue, and The Cut. She is a contributor to The Atlantic where her weekly newsletter Brooklyn Everywhere explores gentrification of people and places. Her New York Times best-selling debut novel, Olga Dies Dreaming, was published in January 2022 by Flatiron Books. Prior to beginning her, MF, her MFA, Sochil was an entrepreneur and a strategic consultant for nearly 15 years. She serves on the board of the Lower East Side Girls Club, a native Brooklyn Knight and proud public school graduate. She received her BA in Fine Art from Brown University. She lives in her hometown of Brooklyn with her dog, Hector Laveau. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Sochu? I'm so good. I'm really delighted to be here with both of you. This is lovely. We're very excited because today is our, like today marks our anniversary. So you are our anniversary interview. It's like a gift. Congratulations, first of all. Like, it's so much work. It's so much work what you all do. And it's so beautiful. So congratulations. That's beautiful. And and you, uh, your work as a writer, we know that that takes a lot. And you, you hit it out of the park with your very first debut novel being um, a New York Times bestseller. How did that feel? Yeah, it was amazing. But and I want to tell you actually what was crazy about it was that it didn't happen the first week. And you know, the first week includes pre-sales. And so I really was a little, I'm I'm a little hard on myself in the sense that like I really wanted to write something that was accessible to um like I, I didn't want to just write something very literary that was so heavy that like you know people would push it to the side because I wanted the larger political message to kind of get out there. And so I was a little like sad the first week and, you know, and I I knew the politics wasn't going to help it get like a Jenna book club pick. Like like, I like literally have a morning show scene. That's not that flattering to morning shows. And so I was like, ah, and so in a weird way to make it the second week was sweeter because it was like, the press and the stuff that usually helps, but readers like talking about it and, and really like people just seeing it because readers were like so passionate and the cover is so beautiful. And like, you know, like the cover is so beautiful, but people were so passionate about it. And that just got more people to go and booksellers were so passionate about it. You know, like it's, I really like hit the list because of the indies, you know, like, I mean, like, um, and that was, amazing you know and 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 then in the end you know she got a lot of love from like kind of all the little morning shows like but but it was a beautiful thing because it really felt 
like the way that I feel the book is, which is kind of about community and the importance of finding place. And so it felt beautiful that it was so reader driven, like the, you know, like um, that people were reading it. And then, and I think that's why we're still talking like, you know, the tale and it's been so, tale and it's so long that I'm tired, but it's why people still want to talk about it, which is great. Yes. I'm, really happy. I'm really, really happy. But I mean, I think I got the call the funniest part is my poor publisher, I think probably wants to kill her. My best friend from childhood works in publishing and she texted me from a meeting to tell me before anybody else could tell me. And so I was like, started crying. I was in the back of an Uber. Like the driver thought something happened. He's like, is everything okay? <laughs> <laughs> Did you tell them that they were I driving told, in New York Times? Yes, I told him and he like was so like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Like I called my friend and I was like, like I was like, hi. And they're like, is everything okay with Hector? And I'm like, <laughs> it's always about Hector. <laughs> about Hector. So I mean, like it felt really good. And it's been a really, it's been a while in contemporary literary fiction that um, you know, a uh, sort of Boricua Nurican story has been in this space. And so it's also just felt for me important. That's felt like very important yeah 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 it's definitely very timely and 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 needed because the time and space that we're in right now is good to read something that just can tug at your heartstrings and also leave you on the edge of your seat not knowing like how is this story mm -hmm. going to end it was it was a tremendous read so thank you for writing that for it, us to take in in, in 2022 yeah. it was fun and yet you know you you get you get your lessons in it like you are you know you read books so your worldview can expand right and you've provided that with also like a fun story like I was laughing I was like oh my god what's gonna happen like my heart is aching so I've been through it I've been through it with this book <laughs> <laughs> no I'm so glad and I I think I really wrote it wanting to keep it entertaining because um so much you know, I, I think I just felt like I was frustrated with how the only people that kind of cared about, well, two things. It was like me and and the Brooklyn of it all, like, and just feeling frustrated that nobody understood that, like, the real place was gone. Like, I felt like like a little bit like Chicken Little, like, I can we live with this guy as well? Like, and nobody was like listening to me. And And I also felt like, you know, the only people that seemed to care about this sort of colonial relationship and what was happening and the corruption going on down in Puerto Rico were people like of the diaspora of the island. And so I think I was like, you know, I, I, I didn't really want to write a book about it. Like I, you know, people are always like, oh, like, is it like autobiographical? Like, I think I just realized that like, that's a fun, like there's fun, weird stuff like about it. And it's a great way to just like to talk about class and like, and this, you know, the romance is like, I wanted to write an older character. And I was like, I think that there's a way to do one thing well to make people care about the other thing, the other two kind of things. And um, and I felt like, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't want to shy away from, I, I, I was influenced a lot by mass market fiction growing up. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I love I love it. Like, I mean, I, I, like, I devoured, I always think it's so funny that like, no one knew what I was reading and it was like smut, like VC Andrews. Like, you know, like it's, <laughs> Like I read, so like there were like four straight years where all I read were stories about incest. Like I was like, <laughs> genre, how weird, right? Like, but like, hey, flowers in the attic. It, it the has attic. what we need to do. <laughs> no, I mean, and I got into like my sweet Audrina. Like, by the way, this woman's been dead for years. I was in like Target and she's still cranking him out. Like, it's like... <laughs> And nearly see Andrew's book, like, and so, but like, I think I want, I was, I'm open, I was open to that. And I think the good thing about going into writing later is like, I sort of knew a lot about how I read and how other people read and that it didn't, I was lucky that I went to such a fine institution as Iowa to go to graduate school, but I wasn't like, going in there I'm like I was pretty opinionated when I got in there and I was like I'm still like reading my mass market fiction and that's okay like you know like it's like you can have things do a lot things can be many things at once as we know right? it's like many things can I mean, be 
let me ask you a question. Uh, going there, did did you see? Did you find that there were a lot of other uh, MFA students who might have been like maybe books snobs? Like, if you were to come in there with a copy of Flower in the Attic, they're like, "Why are you reading that trash?" A hundred percent. Like, some people are like more tongue in cheek about it, but like, there were so many people that were very book snobby, and like, you know, and I think there's like this game that people like to play, or I, I should say, and as an older person, like I've now seen it played so much that I'm like, guess what? No one's read that book. Like no one's read most books. Like, like it's not a thing where like the other person is not read. It's just, there are so many books. Look at, it's like April now. Like there are so many books that dropped today, like mm-hmm. today, like that look amazing. And what's going to happen is a couple you're going to buy, a couple you'll be like, I'll buy them later when my TBR is better. Like, and then you might forget about them. You encounter it in paperback. Like, like life is just long. And so like, you know, what would happen is like, people would be like, have you read blah, 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 like trying to make you feel dumb kind of. And then I would go because, you know, I'm from Brooklyn. So I'm actually a bitch. I just like, you know, it's like when I decide I want to be, well, I'd be like, well, have you read this? Have you read this? And I'd be like, well, that run the national book award that run the Pulitzer prize. And I'd be like, and I'd just be citing books from like 2001. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, oh, you never read that? I was like, that's so weird. It was a huge book. Like when you were 10. Like, <laughs> I love it. Oh my goodness. Just to point out that like we haven't, we go through phases where we read more and read less. And sometimes like, sometimes I'm obsessed with reading old books. Like, do you know, like, it's like, or like, like, like I just reread, it's right here. Oh, it's right here. I just reread The Shining because it just reminded me of something that I wanted to do in the next book. And I was like, oh, The Shining kind of does that. Like, let me go and reread The Shining. So like, I didn't set out to read that this month, but there I was. <laughs> like, anyway, it's life is short and there are many, many books. <laughs> many, many books. And, and people I, should read what they want to read when they yeah, want to read it. And I it. think a book finds you when you need it. Yeah. Like you, oh, 100%. I'm reading a memoir by a Sentera right now that I tried to read five other times. I swear, like I kept trying. And then for some reason, Friday at the airport, <laughs> I like, while online, I just got so into it like it's like like I just could not stop like but I was like oh and I thought that to myself Denny is I was like oh the book like whatever is happening with me right now I like and the book didn't get better or worse I just am in a (laughs) (laughs) oh man well before we we dive deeper into the book we we wanted to ask a few questions about your past life. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so these are a little, a little like what we had like to call hot seat questions. So <laughs> we'll, we'll get started. So what was the most annoying thing that a bride and groom have you do that you remember? Oh, well, uh, that they had me do. He once had us walk a dog. That was terrible. But the worst thing that, you know, and the dog was massive too, like massive, like massive, so big. Um, The worst thing that I think I've ever had to do is help a bride pee, like in one of those giant ball gowns. And like, like, I mean, that was just possibly the worst thing. And the worst thing that they've ever done was somebody stiffed us on our last payment at one of the last weddings that I did. And it was the most demoralizing, demoralizing, terrible humiliating thing and that was when I was like got to call this a wrap soon (laughs) man man. how long did you do wedding planning and so long my my best friend and I we weren't best friends when we started the business but we worked together at a job uh doing like events like a award show for advertising and then we kind of had this idea that was a tech idea that we couldn't get funding for but it was around wedding as the reason why we couldn't get funding supposedly I mean now we know so much about women and women of color she's a Chicana woman like going out and getting funding in tech and like it just doesn't happen but the reason we were told is because we didn't actually know anything about weddings so we were like well let's start planning some weddings to learn stuff about weddings and that was like in 2003 and I did it until like I was actively in the business until 2015 and then like I stepped away um and I think the last wedding that I actually ever went to, because I knew the couple, like there were like referrals of referrals of referrals was like Lizzie Kaplan's wedding um, in Italy. And like, it was, yeah. And as a matter of fact, and her, her and Tom, her husband sent me like the most wonderful, like congratulations, but they love the book. Like, 
because they were lovely people. Like, and people are always like, do your terrible clients contact you about the book? And I'm like, my terrible clients know enough not to contact me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare. Like, I wish you could. <laughs> Try it. Try it. Uh, next question. What was the most expensive thing you uh, that you would have to get to be bought for a wedding? Oh, hmm, that's so good. I mean, custom, oh, huppas, like huppas, you know, like the like I did a huppa once that was all, and we're actually they're really still good friends. It was made the spot, it was at the New York Public Library. I I love this huppa. And the spines were spirals of books, and the cap was all Edison bulbs. And that was like, I mean, that was a piece of art. I designed another one that was basically like a cauldron sculpture. So like I spent a lot of money on, but they were like very artistic, you know, like, and like light, light fixtures. We do custom light fixtures a lot. So like, that was like, we did cool. Like when the people were cool, we did cool shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Man, I bet that was nice. Is it expensive like to get married at the New York Public oh, library. God, yes, it's very expensive. It is very like, yeah, like by the end, we were definitely mainly working on like half million dollar weddings or more, you know, like so um yeah, yeah, yeah. It was super high intense, but you know, like also people don't want mistakes like when that happens. So, you know, sometimes the artistic stuff was fun, but like the level of stress was really it was also half a million dollar worth of tents. <laughs> <laughs> half a million dollars worth of stress. And like, and you know what it is? It's like, if you're spending that, it means you've got so much more. And so you're also terrified of getting sued. Like, and I think there's like a little throwaway line that I have in the early part of the book about that. But like, but it's like, it's a real thing. You know, like it was so important to me that she be an entrepreneur because um, I just feel like so many women of color are because there's less barrier to cap yourself right like like you know there's but at the same time it's also the stress that you have in your life what is one thing that's not worth doing or paying for in a wedding oh that's a great 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 question hold on I used to know the answer like that like off the bat and now I'm like wait what was my answer that I would have given to brides magazine um I think (laughs) what's not worth paying a lot of money for is I don't want to say it's not really I wouldn't say flowers no it's like all these things actually suddenly feel so important I'm like if you were my friends and I were to tell you now I'm like oh actually here's what it is I wouldn't it's people it's not to say like not to have people it's more to say no (laughs) I love love you I love that there's so much here's what it is people think that they need to invite a person that they used to say hello to on the bus to their wedding Mm -hmm. and as I, but then at the same time, they're cheap in real life. Okay. So like you'd go to dinner with them and they would never be like, let me get you dinner. And I, the best way to cap your guest list is to look at the list and be like, if I went to dinner with them, would I offer to pay? Because you're basically paying to have them at a very elaborate dinner. (laughs) So if you want to keep your costs down, pay for everything that you want, but just stop having people there that don't really mean anything to you because you're afraid of them getting upset. Like, it's also hard when you have parents who want to invite people that they don't even know. Like, I don't know them. There's a thing called the four list method that I used to use and everybody had to make a guest list. And if people didn't appear on at least two of the lists, but not every person, the parents, both sets of parents and then the couple. And if the person didn't appear on both two out of the four lists, they weren't invited. Wow. That's a good idea. Slow clap for so chill. <laughs> Yes. I was good at this. I was good at this. <laughs> I believe I believe you. I believe you. Oh man, that's life-changing right there. Put it, I mean, I've, I'm already married, but you know, I have two sisters, so I'm like, put it in the back. <laughs> oh, and the only other thing I would say, and people are gonna kill me, but like like every videographer in the country, is, I don't know that I think video is as worth it as I used to, because I feel like it's just so you don't really watch it as much. You don't admit like it's not as watched. Like, so yeah, that's, but every, uh, even though one of my friends just got married and sent me the link to the most beautiful video, it's, that's one thing where I'm like, beautiful photos, also great. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree because I'll ask a lot of couples like, when the last time you watched the video? The video. We never watched it or we watched it when they gave it to us and we've not looked at it since. And since, yes. Yeah. Very I have a friend, she would make her husband watch it every anniversary. Anniversary? <laughs> That's sweet. It's like, remember? <laughs> we used to like each other. The promises that were made. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go and talk about this beautiful baby of yours, Olga Dye's Dreaming. Um, your book covers a number of topics, and one that stuck out to us the most would probably be the relationships so of all of the all of the people and the duality that that they all struggled with, right? So you had Olga and her brother Prieto, and then even Mateo with. In regards to him being this entrepreneur, but uh, having this secret life of hoarding things, you know, he's dealing with all of that. And then, uh, in a sense, also uh, Dick yeah, <laughs> was having this affair with Olga. What was it to craft these characters with that in, in mind, with them having all of these different types of struggles? Well, I think that it was only really conscious well with Olga and Matteo and Prieto it was very conscious that they're kind of living in a capitalistic society for like a, a white capitalistic society and so by very definition they need to be dual people right like they are the people that they can be in their own like home space for lack of a better word and then they are the people that they are going to be in the external world and i think that you know when i was working on the the, the pilot version i had to write like a character breakdown of mateo for instance and you know and he so i know all this stuff about mateo that other people don't even know but like you know he um he was biracial and like and he in this character bio like I talk about him having to deal with some of even his own mother's biases like in, uh, intrinsic biases that like she doesn't even realize that she has and so there's like sort of a a being of two people even amongst both of his parents and then deciding getting so exhausted of it that he's like I'm just going to be myself like I have to just be myself and mm -hmm. so you know I think that um that that need to be two things um, or more, two or more things, like, was a big part of, of the book, and I think what was funny is that about the dick thing, and, you know, even, like, the Selby's, like, to a certain extent, a lesser extent, but, like, it's almost like Olga, Prieto, Mateo, that's by design that they have this complication in their life, like, it's, like, like, they didn't seek it out, and then a lot of the stuff that you see the Selby's get into or Dick and the affair and blah, blah, blah. It's all like hubris, like boredom almost, you know, like it's like, like it's like a need to like literally like, I can't believe I'm using this phrasing, but like spice things up, you know, like it's right. like, and, and I think it's this idea of, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if you've gotten to read Hulisa Arce's new book, but like, uh, um, you t sound like a white girl, but like she has this visual of like a woman starting a race and the hurdles keeping getting dirt, like, and it's this idea that like, you know, well, we're all the same, like we all are the same. And it's like, no, actually they're already exhausted. Like by the time <laughs> they're exhausted, like, and you're just going around looking for something to like distract you from your own boredom. And like, and so, and I think that, and I do think though that it didn't necessarily take a ton of con conscious construction as much as I was like, this character is going to be this. And then it's like, well, what would that mean? You know, like, okay, he's like, just to to use Mateo as an example, like here he's a biracial man that went to like a private school, like for high school, and then a board, like you know, went to New England in this era, and now he's back, like, and he went into banking and he stopped that, and it's like 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 why, like it's like a mental breakdown of sorts, and his mom gets sick, and it's like like where would he be now? Like, and literally, it was just kind of the walking through that, you know, and I hope that the show gets made because there's this awesome scene in the second episode for that Jesse plays where like you know he also is dealing with like you know and he's like literally like the sweetest man ever and like a woman like a, a white lady in this episode like poops in front of his house and doesn't pick it up and he goes hey and she like 
gets like frightened of him. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, like, and he's, <laughs> you know, like, but, but that's like the kind of shit that when I was thinking of the character, I'm like, that is what he's living with. And so that's going to come through in some of his stuff. And like, and that was sort of how it was with all of those characters. And like every rich white guy that I know, and I actually know a lot of them, like usually when their lives explode, they had a large something to do with it exploding. <laughs> that part. That part. Oh yeah. I, I have to say Mateo's character was definitely one of my, one of my, my favorites. Was there on purpose that you didn't have his, his voice be spoken? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted him to be a catalyst if that makes sense. But like, I think it was very important to me that it be well, I wouldn't even just say important to me that it be the family story. After a while, I realized that what was happening was that, and then I worked to to clean that, was that each POV kind of is, represents a part of the Puerto Rican experience. Mm-hmm. And so you have like the unvarnishedness is Blanca and that's kind of just like the island itself. Like, it's like, it's going to be what it's going to be. You know, you're going to get wind, you're going to get sun, you're going to get a little bit, you're going to get storms, you're going to get all of it. And and then Prieto is more of the diasporic like experience and sort of thinking you know what's best, but not always knowing what's best and being frightened. Like it's this idea of like they can't be independent, we'll never make it, you know, like and like it's like just it comes from this fear-based thing. And Olga really just represented more of the like Boricua, right? And she's trying to find her own agency and her own like liberation and self-determination. And so I had to have Dick because he, you can't have this experience without the United States. And it's not, it's generally, I think, been such a passive relationship of passive harm, um, you know, uh, over the course of these hundreds so years, like, uh, and, and so I think that that to me was more of what, um, why, what the POVs were. And so because, but, but Mateo has a counterpoint in the Selby's and that, they represent kind of economic systems and he's sort of compassionate capitalism. Whereas like, you know, the Selby's are almost like an anarchic, um, like an, like an anarchic state, uh, you know, a neoliberal, like anarchy almost like, and it it was very, they were very inspired by um, the guy that wore all the shirts with Donald Trump. Oh my God. He was so scary. Steve Bannon. Uh, <laughs> they were very inspired by Steve Bannon and this idea of like deconstruction, de- libertarian, like ext- anarchic libertarianism was really what, what it was about. So they had rules, but they were not part is directly part of that story. That was good. Yeah. Cause I was like, I, I was, I was thinking like, you know, all these characters I'm, I'm, I was thinking like has a symbolism for everything that is happening, like in, in the moving world, especially like, as you know as a Boricua in like in Brooklyn I'm yeah. sure it's like you know very specific kind of like storylines in and itself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I wanted to be like you know like I share the same feeling like, I hope like really the the tv show gets made because then we get to explore a little bit more about these characters like you were saying yeah, yeah. we're very excited about that Veronica yes. likes to watch oh. you know all, <laughs> oh, all stuff. I know it's so like it's you know hug a creator of color because it's a lot of work protecting your children out there you know what I mean like it's a lot of work protecting your children but I hope um you know we shot the pilot and we're shopping it's not going to be on Hulu it's going to be on a streamer but we're shopping now like literally in the next couple of weeks like um you know Aubrey and Ramon are like producers on the project too so we're just it's a beast coordinating schedules but yeah I'm hoping so too like I'm hoping so too because it was really beautiful to get a chance to take these stories and get details and meet characters that you don't really meet in the book that are actually so colorful and alive and cool and like yeah 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 and see Brooklyn that way you know that was so important I think for some reason the hitting the times list also felt like um 
I, I would say no diss to all these other writers, but I do mean a diss to them. Like, it's like, like I'm, I'm, I get very pissy when people have like, it seems like they've reclaimed Brooklyn in like a literary space. Mm. And I felt really good. Like it felt like a bizarre, like little like flag planting. Like it's like, boop, like, you know, <laughs> like it's a, this is also a, like when I think of a Brooklyn novel, this is what I'm thinking of and not like, you know, hipsters online for a concert and like, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I mean, it was cool. hipsters were cool too, but like, I just, you know, I think it was like, it all is part of the experience and it felt very erased this version, and, except there's this awesome book. And I can't believe I didn't talk about it more in interviews. It's called bright lines. Um, and it's an awesome book about, um, a Pakistani family in Brooklyn and it's an amazing book and like and she had been a public school teacher the author and like and um anyway it's a beautiful book about it's a beautiful Brooklyn book that was written recently that, by a non-Brooklynite but she really owned it do you know what I mean like it's like it was really really awesome yeah so we're we're going to um to to Miss Blanc Miss Bianca Blanca ah, yes so the Los Banuelos Negros was the resistant group organized by, by Olga's mother, Blanca. It is refreshing to see a, a women leading a meaningful uprising. Um, we read that you have done quite a amount of research to present this fact to readers. How rev- revolutionary was it to write about such truth that women are able to be in the forefront of change? Yeah, so I, you know, Blanca was inspired by a few things. You know, my mother had been an activist and is not a good mother. And I was sort of intrigued by this because I was watching this Nina Simone documentary and her daughter is like very, you know, her mother wasn't the greatest mother. And, you know, there's a Dolores Huerta documentary and it was a similar thing. And I think there's this thing about sometimes when you're thinking about these big things, it's hard to be present for these smaller things that, you know, are our children. And then I was doing, and so, and I had read, I read this book called Through the Eyes of Rebel Women, and it's almost all first person accounts of the women in the Young Lords movement. And, and I, I was like, oh, you know, I want to make sure that I have that represented here. And, um, and, Ultimately, what made me to have her go, go so radical and have that wanting that to be a woman was that I was reading about, a, he's in the book, Filiberto Ojeda Rios, who had been the head of the Machateros before the FBI assassinated him in 2005. And he had been hiding in the hills of Puerto Rico for like 13 years or something and had three or four kids and only communicated with them through like oh, recordings. You know, he'd send little tapes and everybody celebrates him like as this national hero of liberation. And he is that, but I was like, but he was also a terrible father. Like that's yeah. like a totally like a Debbie, Debbie, but nobody says that. And I was like, well, I really wanted, what would people say? Like, you know, if that was a woman that did that and that was like, you know, like how would people react to that? And, and I, and I also wanted, it was important to me. And that was like selfish, probably my own therapy. It was like, you know, for very many years, my mother was, um, like in the Socialist Worker Party, and she was like a plant um, to galvanize unions in factories. And so she would go all over the country and work in factories, like with people and like, and help them organize from inside. And, um, you know, instead of being like some outsider, you know, coming in and, and I felt like, you know, and she did a lot of other stuff, a lot of other stuff, but like that felt like important and that being important made me feel less like left. And I thought that that was an important part of Olga's identity as well that I decided we could share because I think that sense of like, well, I wasn't left, they're doing this other thing, but then how that makes you feel when you're doing something that seemed more shallow, right? Like, and I found that conflict also just super interesting. I like that part because, you know, it it goes to show like the sacrifices that one decides because there's there's the the sacrifice that you make when you have no choice but to make the sacrifice but when presented with Olga's mom it's kind of like this was her choice yeah and there was things that she wanted and there were things that she didn't want and how can you convey that to a child you know so that's right yeah and I think also I think it's just interesting because what is the role of patriarchy even if there's a a woman running like she still kind of has a very patriarchal idea of what a family should be and the role of children and that they're about legacy and like you know like she's actually like 
quite still patriarchal, even though she probably would consider herself a feminist, Blanca. But like, I was like, like she's still very much in this idea of like structure and like leadership and, you know, and, you know, and, and what, what are the, what's the role of a family? Like a child's meant to be obsequious to their parent, you know, like, and like, and I think that that just was interesting. And I, it's been surprising to me because I wrote her so specific, like, I think it's been so surprising to me to like go to book clubs and stuff and have you be like, it was just like talking to my mom, like, you know, I could, but I think that a lot of people and I can only say this, like, I think a lot of like, I know for sure Latina moms and definitely I think like culturally ethnic moms have a, it's sort of a one-sided conversation with kids, right? Like, it's like, like, and I think that the letters in some way ended up being very, um, really have spoken to people and that they're like this is sometimes how it's felt like I'm like I'm trying to tell you who I really am and it's like this one-sided conversation yeah them always saying no that's not that's not it even to you know the point where she's like you know saying you don't need to be with this person you need to be someone else and the control of that person making their life choices of like well you got to decide who you want it to be with why not Allow well, me. Well, and I don't know. And it's funny because I think about that a lot. And I'm obviously like I'm happy she ends up with Mateo, but I I think part of why I had her, she's kind of a lonely person, is that you're like, I wonder what could have happened. Like what would have happened with that? Like, you know, like, and I mean, and Reggie's a little bit of like a hotep, like, you know, it's like maybe it just kind of <laughs> out. like it might not have worked out anyway, but like, you know, I think like you are sort of like. I, I don't, I don't know. Like I, I it could have, maybe that would have been. Right. <laughs> like I thought, you know, I, I've seen this on the internet and people are like, sometimes the dialogue is so overly explained. I was like, that's just Reggie being that guy. Like, I was like, I clearly, you just don't know that guy, but I was like, that is totally like Jim just being that guy. Like <laughs> There are guys like that. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, they're around, they're lurking. They're and they, they, the moment. yes. And they live and thrive on HBCU campuses everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. I'm about to keep my mouth shut because I'm going to self, I'm going to identify somebody and I'm going to just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> We're calling the people out. Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah, that, that part of like Blanca really like made me question like, well, what is a good mother? Who makes a decision of like, who is a good mother is, is, you know, yeah. was, was um, Tia Lola, their abuela, a better mother than, than her to them? Or yeah. so was it really, was it really fair to birth a child knowing that you never really wanted them, you know? And yeah, I, I, I know. No, I know. And I think, you know, and sometimes I do think like there's a lot of different kinds of mothering, you know, like, and I think, um, I mean, I think I'm in the middle of this um, in my own head, but like, it's like, like Sandra Cisneros says, you know, my children are my books, right? Like, and my art or my, my art are my children. My art is my children. My books are my children. My, my, my children are my, my books are my children. My art is my children. And, you know, and I definitely, when I see my mother friends, I see, when I have writer friends that are mothers, I'm always like bow down, like, because that is, it's so, you know, it's such a, I, when you watch the Toni Morrison doc, like, it's like, like, she keep her, I'm like, how did you get these genius books written? Like, it's amazing. So I think though that it's like, I think with Blanca, I always felt like she, feel, I, there's a line and she says, um, you know, there's, I, this is a different kind, both are expressions of love, like about like choosing to read a, lead a revolution or be with her husband. And mm-hmm. she sees, I think she sees this as being a good mother because she's giving them if she does her job right in her mind, she's giving them an inheritance that's a liberated home, right? Like, and so in, I think she just thinks in a much more abstract way that is less, I don't know. And I, I mean, have you ever met people like this? Like, like they're like big, like they're so good this way. Like they're on a stage and it's like, you feel like you're like just there with them. And then like you meet them at the thing afterwards and they're like, ah, like, and like <laughs> looking past you, like there's no connection. Like, and it's, it's, it's like, and then there are people that are terrible on those stages and then so good. Like when you, like, I remember meeting Hillary Clinton at some point during the camp and I could not believe how, charming and amazing she was one-on-one like she was like oh you're Dior's friend like she must have met seven thousand people that day like I was like 
yes like you know like it's like like and it's like but then you put her up on a stage and you're just like oh hills like (laughs) maybe it's one of those things of kind of like partly not to in terms of like what they're saying but just their personality of maybe they're afraid once they get up there and they're just like oh shit I gotta like actually do the thing I think that just some people like their priorities are broader and so they're able to not care about the missed eggs does that make sense like it's like like I'm not going to be able to collect everything so like my I'm thinking this way so something there's going to be some casualties right like in that and I think that there are other people that are more individual concerned you know like and and they tend to actually be detailed people you know like it's like they're, they're the people that are like thinking about like, well, what about this one type of person that has this one unique experience? Let's think about them. Like, you know, like, and, and then that tends to not necessarily always translate in mass, I think. And so I just think I wanted to write a mother that was one of those big people, you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and then where is the fallout to the kids, you know, like, and that I thought was just um, intriguing. Yeah. People are quick to utter decolonize your life or decolonize your bookshelf. Um, it has been more prevalent in the past three years when the world, we went through a lot of like social political struggles coming from a country that was also a former annex of the United States. Yes. I'm Filipino. Yes. So um, uttering like decolonization tends to mean a little bit like heavier to me. Yeah. So to me, I consider you brave because you were not afraid to put in the book uh, that the process of decolonizing Borikian can can and must happen. How did you manage to be that fervent with that topic while also being like funny and sassy and all the other parts of your book? Um, I think I felt, ironically, I felt really fueled by rage. And I think that anger is an energetic place. And so from an energetic place, you can find humor and also like, you know, it's so absurd. Like so much of this stuff is so absurd. Like, I think like when you look at even just gentrification here, right. And like, and the idea that like there was or just the absurdity of the cycle of it, that like there was a colony, people were pushed out to become either because we needed labor or because we had like stolen all their farms that they were landing or like farming. And then they were forced into New York become an essential integrated part of New York. And then when we decide we don't want that anymore, it's like we push that whole community out and then that culture is decimated. Like a New Yorkian culture is basically slowly dying. And and I think the idea that that is like, it's literally, um, you know, we paved paradise to put up a parking lot. Like, it's like, 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 and I think that that, watching that play out, you know, and nothing amuses me more. And I think I put it in the book. Like, it's like, like we're doing that in order to put up, like gringo-fied Mexican bars, like, right? Like, it's like, like, and it's, but it's like, it's so ridiculous that you have to laugh. Like, it's like, I remember being like, suddenly like, like, if you think about it, Hawaii was in the state, uh, the same state. And it's like, and suddenly we decide that poke is hot. And it's like, like, what's, what's a Filipino dish that suddenly we're going to decide is so hot or like a Puerto dish. And it's like, and now everybody's eating it and they feel really like cool. And it's like, like just the, the appropriation of things and the, the whim, you know, it's, it's comedic, but ridiculous though. Like, um, the whimsical ease with which we just like white culture, American white culture decides that things are cool or disposable, you know, like is like, and that then therefore that's supposed to give us validity. And I think like, I was like, it's so um, like precarious and like, what's the, you know, it's so by the wind, like like, uh, it's whatever the way the wind blows and has no rhyme or reason that I think it was easy to get to a funny but also rage filled place about it because so much of how we've been conditioned, you know, when people say decolonize yourself and decolonize your bookshelf, like, I think it's like, what we're really saying is strip the white gaze off of your life. And, and like, stop assessing yourself. You know, I mean, and I still struggle. The second book, like um, the character has goes to college. It's partially a campus novel and she has an eating disorder and it's very much driven by the sudden like shift. Right. And I think 
like that's an area that I still struggle with that, but like in other areas I don't. And I find it when you decide to strip that gaze away though, of so much of the stuff, it's that gaze is hilarious. Like that gaze is so ridiculous that it is really easy to find humor in it. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the idea, there's a part like in the later Dick scene, like where he's talking about how much he admires her, like for her pluck, but it's, he can only admire her in a way that reaffirms how great he is, that she gets right. in the same rooms with him. Mm-hmm. Like that she somehow did that, wow, you know? And like, she's like, and Aida makes her like her brother more. Like, and I think that these are real thoughts like that people have, and it's like to call attention to them is, is important. And it's a, it's a way in which, to help us, you know, like help us strip that gaze off of our own life and our own accomplishments and our own sense of worth and validity. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, and I think she gets to this place, sorry, now I'm talking too much, but she gets to this place at the end where she sees that the time that she spends with her family is more valuable than the time she was spending accumulating money to acquire things. It's like, like, there's going to be a happy in between. There can be a happy in between, but like, she sort of reconciles the values of Borigen, like, and, and of her, like, mother people with her mother culture, with this living in this culture that does not value those things. Yeah, this, this story really helps you talk about what that white gaze is and helps you try to figure out, like, where you are, what's your meter of, like, are you right in it? Like, are you allowing that white gaze to dominate everything that it is that you're doing? Or have you started to move yourself to the other end of the spectrum? And I want to be on the far end. I, I want to operate in a life where I don't give a fuck yeah, about yeah. who is watching every single thing that I am doing. And it's just always something always tries to pull you back in to dictate why why they're there right yeah and I think I, you know I, for me I write through a lot of my demons like I think I work through a lot of shit and by the like the the book getting received the way that it's been received like has definitely I was on a zoom and it was like through my alumni network and I had asked to do it with the dean of the college because she's like an Afro-Latina that was at college when I was there um you know and now she happens to be the dean of the college and so she was like we thought it would be since this is a woman organizing it lovely white woman she's like we thought it would be really cute for you and Dean Rodriguez to explain, you know, cute and sweet anecdote about how you met. And I said, it was like, well, it's not an anecdote. It's one word. It's called racism. There were like 20 of us here and we all knew everything about each other because there were so few of us here. (laughs) I don't even know. I don't remember meeting her. It just always was. You know, like you start talking crazy to people, but it's true. You're not saying anything that's not true. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you're not saying anything that's not true. And I think like this has mildly emboldened me, but I am still working on different aspects of my life, you know, like, I'm like, and the next book deals a lot with the art world. And it's like, like, I've been rethinking what's my aesthetic sense. Like, why is my aesthetic sense that way? All right. So then talk to me about what was that experience like for you to be a student uh, within this like very prestigious, well-known writers workshop? Yeah. Well, I mean, the age thing was a really interesting thing and it's made me realize what, you know, it's a challenge that we have for fiction. Like I was great in the sense that Sam Chang does her very best to create a truly diverse student body. So, um, and it's free, it's a fully funded program. So you see less of the sort of like classism that you see in a lot of, which is a poison for our literary community because you get books that are devoid of concerns of class, even though those are the realistic concerns of most readers. You know, like people think that authors get mad when they see them posting library books. And I'm always like, great. I'm so glad that you got it from the library. Like, you know, that's awesome. Like, it's like, like, I'm just happy that you have access to the books you want to read. Like, you know, like, that's great. But I think that, so I was a little bit better than that. And also they care a lot less about like, there are a few people that had not gone to like a traditional undergraduate, you know, like, which is great. And that also diversifies experience. The challenge is, is that it's a residential program. And so you end up with 
this homogeneity of age for the most part. And so for me, that was a little bit harder. It was just like I was a lot older than most people. And, um, and you know, and like writing about middle-class concerns you can't relate to until middle, I mean, middle age concerns, not middle class concerns, middle age concerns. And of course, you never know what it's like to feel older until you're older, right? <laughs> so, you know, and some of those things that come up. So I think that I felt, generally speaking, um, there was off the, you know, mainly boxes checked of diversity, but I would say that it was a far more elite environment than even Brown, like intellectually. And I think there were a lot of people that didn't quite feel like they fit in. And I felt um, sensitive to that. And like, you know, and I had a classmate who was actually my age. And I remember um, Sam Chang, actually, we were in workshop and she was talking about something about grammar. And he said, grammar is classist. And I, and I said, I was like, actually, like, I was like, I have to really agree with David. I never was taught grammar in, in public school because it was like an era uh, in New York where we didn't have um, ESL programs. So everybody was in a classroom together. And so they didn't want to penalize people for grammar if that was not their language. And so I just never learned grammar, you know, like it's like, like and, I, and I, it's all instinct. And so like, I think some of these things are like, you know, people would be like, oh, buildings Roman. And like, we're like, what does that mean? Like, I, but I was so, you know, I was 42 and I just feel like, I don't know what that means. Like, hello. Like, what does that mean? Like, you're like, <laughs> like, I don't care. Like, it's like, so there was a certain amount of like, I think it was better that I was older. Like if I was even 10 years younger, I think I would have been annoyed by some things, you know what I mean? Like, and like, I can sort of shut literary Twitter out and like, I can shut pretension out. And like, I, I came and I had like my grip of girlfriends at home that like, I, you know, we talked every morning, I'd get up at five, I'd be on the phone with them. Like I was ensconced in like, my adult life still, like, how's your mother doing? Like what's going on with their so-and-so's divorce? You know, like, and so it all felt, like sweet when I would engage with it it was sweet and I tried to not engage when it pitched tipped me past the where I'm like this is not the real world like, like, like this is not the real world like and you're like it doesn't because there were a lot of people that came straight from undergraduate right to Iowa mm-hmm. and that's a very you know diff- there are people that are going from Iowa to law school you know like it's like like that that weird thing that happens in your 20s you're like I don't know maybe I'll try to be a lawyer you know like it's like and I think that's also okay but I I think I came in feeling very mission driven and I wanted to just soak things up. And I was very, I was determined to not do what I had done at Brown, which is to allow myself to feel that I didn't belong there. Um, And I think if anything, I tried to, you know, create space in my home for students that maybe felt like they didn't necessarily belong there. So it was a sweet time. And I made some sweet friends because of that. Mm. But not and, in a contentious place, if that makes sense. Both things can be true. <laughs> yeah, because in I, I read it in Bustle where you were talking about how you worked through the imposter syndrome while you're you were uh, at Brown during your time yeah. there. What was it for you to be able to work through all of that and say, okay, this is not mine. So this is not my ministry. This is not for me to hold. Yeah, you know, I think it was when I came out on the other side and I felt different than my other students like than the other students and I shouldn't have do you know what I mean? like I shouldn't have felt less like I would see you know for instance people like writing a book or like you know Alex Wagner from MSNBC was in my class mm-hmm. and you know suddenly she was like like we graduated and all of a sudden she was editing like like I can't even remember what magazine it was but like a massive magazine at the time and then the next thing you know she's on MSNBC and it's like an I I'm like I didn't feel that I had left with that kind of network or preparedness or whatever. And a lot of it was because I played myself small, I think there, I don't think it's not to begrudge Alex Wagner. It's more to just say like, you know, I, I think I didn't ex- avail all of the things that were there to myself. Like there were things, yes, I was working 40 hours a week, most of the time that I was at Brown, right? Like it's like, so yes, that's one thing. But on the other side, I definitely, um, I didn't lead with confidence. I felt I had to learn so many things in order to earn the space. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's a lot. Yeah. And so I definitely felt like I wasted relationships. I also was like, you know, I was kind of pissed off because of it. You know what I mean? And like, and I didn't give everybody a fair shake in the same way. And like, and I think I kept my world small there too. And I, I, I sort of, um, I don't want to 
obviously regretted it, but I think I kind of left with a lot more social capital. And in the in the feeling this way, what happened is I I, I cheated myself out of the social capital that so many other people left with. Um, and probably somebody that was in my class, Brent, is like, what are you talking about? But that is how I, my experience was, and it was very isolating, you know, like, and I'm working, I was not going to let myself feel that way or feel like, and, you know, also it was a giant part of affirmative action in that era, like where everybody openly talked about it. And I think one of the things that helped me fix it is that by the end of the time, I, I wrote an honors thesis and it won like an award. And I was like, okay, you were smart enough to be here, like A, and then B, I was like, oh, like, wait, your dad owns a gallery or like, like what's like your, all your parents have gone here for three generations. Like, it's like, like suddenly you realize there are lots of forms of affirmative action and that there was almost always a behind the scenes connection that helped somebody that when it seemed like, how did that happen for them? Like there was almost always a behind the scenes connection. And that made me feel less inadequate, if that makes sense. Cause I think for a long time, I swallowed those things inadequacies. Um, and I just wasn't going to do that, um, to do that anymore. And I, I do think though, that that said, I absolutely am working through this. The second part of the second book is a campus novel. And I am definitely reworking through that stuff. Like, you know, like I am like in a different way, like I had put it away, but now I'm like really unpacking it. And, and I think in a way that's going to be good, but I also think is going to be very healing for other women to see it. Yeah. Well, I know I can't wait to read it. Yes. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I need, I need that book now. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it, it's hard. It's, it's hard to maneuver in the world where, you know, like people are always kind of like looking at you and you always question yourself if, you know, do I really deserve this or do I deserve the space that I'm in? Yeah, or, yes, know, like, that's right. And, and, and what do you do to make yourself feel that you're worth the place for other people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, you know, like, and I think, like, what is it, like, what do you swallow to not make other people feel uncomfortable? And what, like this idea, when we were talking about the that white gaze, it's like, we have to, until we can strip ourselves, and I hope, I don't know, I think, I'm, I think of them all as little liberations, you know, and I'm like, I'm hoping that this is like the root of when we first start thinking that we need to make other people, white people feel comfortable with our presence. And it's like, that was the first time I'd ever experienced that. And, you know, and I make white people feel so comfortable because of the way that I look like, you know, so it's like, so I, I think then it's like, well, I'm, I feel uncomfortable about this. Can I say it? And then it's like, I'm afraid to say it because I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. You know, this idea of like, what do we swallow for and I think that that's kind of one of the things that I want to look at in the next in the next book because I think that's sort of the 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 root of where she gets fucked up in this book you know she goes and it's like that ah, her mother is always a little bit right even when she's a little bit wrong <laughs> yes there's there's I have to give her that <laughs> she is speaking on it it um it makes me think about this TikTok video I just saw uh where this man was talking about how he likes to make white people especially white men feel uncomfortable and that they were in a convenience store and someone said oh it looks like it's getting ready to rain it's getting cloudy i think rain is coming and the and the man was like i don't believe you and you could (laughs) see the face he was like that's all you have to say just say i don't believe you and it just makes them go insane and they're like looking at you like how do you not believe me so i'm oh gonna have to God. That's so good. <laughs> that is great that's hilarious that's so hilarious <laughs> those are the three powerful words i, I don't, don't believe, believe you, you. Well, it strikes deep because it's like and then what are you going to start not believing me about like <laughs> where we ask a question and we ask everybody who comes on the show and we want to know what are your top five favorite books of all time Ooh! oh my gosh okay um that's a good question okay so I start with 100 years of solitude because I absolutely love it I am like so by the way this is like like I'm the I get so panicked I'm always like ah! like <laughs> I would say the bluest eye because I've reread that. Like, I'm thinking about books that I've reread a lot. Um, Fortress of Solitude, um, The Sellout. 
um, and Anne of Green Gables. Uh, I love the series. The oh, I love the eighties. I think it was. Yes, it was so good. I like. You know what? I think because I didn't have my parents, and then she didn't have her parents. She was like this like person for me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wait, and I'm pro- actually I'm gonna say I'm gonna give a bonus because I know I'm not supposed to say it, but I reread it secretly because I feel like I the brief and wondrous life of Oscar Wow is. Oh my god, I love that book. <laughs> it I'm is genius. that book. So actually, I should say I, I know I'm supposed to say five. I'm gonna knock somebody off. I, I don't know who to knock off, but I'm knocking off. <laughs> we can take an honorable mention. I know because yeah. I, I, I reread it and the parts. When everybody was so obsessed with Junior, which I think, of course, is only what helped bring his downfall, unfortunately. But you know what he wrote the shit out of was the sister. Yes. His POVs are, I mean, bril- brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And I, I don't know when we're going to have this conversation about what do we do about babies and bathwater? Because, mm. you know, I mean, I was an art history person. and if we were to take down the paintings of every horrific artist that treated women terribly, we'd have empty museums. <laughs> this is true. Tis is true. I don't even want to say just men because I've heard some rumors about some contemporary artists um, that have been not con- kind to their partners. You know what I mean? Like, and so I, I just want to say, like, I think that, I don't know, but because of that, like, and we would learn their biographies and their stories and these horrible stories about them and then still look at their art. Like, right, like we were literally studying their art and, and these terrible right. things. So I think I'd always kind of come at it from a tradition of, oh, this is probably going to be a bad person. Like, <laughs> you know, like the art maker is probably not a good person. Um, and so, and then, you know, like, I think what it, there was always, like, you know, I think um, I remember there being, a, a whole expose about you know big pun like beating his wife and like and it's sort of like this was like in the 90s when he was so popular and just sort of and I remember being in college and being like I mean artists are kind of terrible like I mean I mean art like the two things don't and so I don't know when we have that lart when we get to that place because um, I think it's hard when they're around and offending currently like I think it's easier when they're dead <laughs> like, you know to make peace with it but that book is brilliant it's brilliant. It's just so brilliant. And the fact that he writes women so well is fascinating, but like, that's very therapist. I, I go to that book when I'm in a rut, when yes. I'm like, and I don't know what to read, but I, you know, I want something that would like quench something inside of me. Yeah. So I remember I, one time I was reading that book and I was getting my hair cut done. Ah, and the, then the ladies were like, oh, what are you reading about? And I was really trying to explain it to them. And they're like, what? Are you sure that's a good book? You seem very interested in it. Because, you know, like, instead of, like, talking to everybody in the salon pre-pandemic, why yeah. I. <laughs> yes, um, totally, totally. You know, they were just like, okay, well, let me look at it. And they're like, oh, okay. And they're like, you know, there's something, there's, I think there's an underlying humor to it that not everybody can also, like, go with. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I do think like, I think that that there'd be no Olga if it weren't for that book. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I because I, I, I think it made me less apologetic about feeling I had to explain things. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was like, oh, I, really, I it, it gave me more sense of agency. Like, you know, sometimes I think, you know, I, I don't know. I, I was not as much of a fan of Junior like as other people were, but like I, when I read the sisters part, it's pure womanhood. You know what I mean? Like it's so like, right. It's right. I, I have the a whole thing with the mother and the like, and when she cuts her hair and it's just like so wild and powerful and like, and I just, I don't know. I don't think there'd be an Olga without that book. So I should have put that on my list. Um, it's on there. It's like a bonus. It's a bonus. Yes. A bonus. <laughs> that asterisk Think right there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Well, Sochil, thank you so much for honoring us with your presence and all of your wonderful words that you've shared with us in your book and in this conversation. We we greatly appreciate it. Yes, I I strive for your passion and that just mm-hmm. kind of apologetically being you because I think we like, you know, like books come to us when we need it and like authors conversation come to us when we, when we need it the most. 
so you know this has been like the highlight of to me like our day today so we made our birthday special I know happy happy birthday and thank you for this space and this is just really beautiful and I think you know I will just say like and I promise I'll keep brief but like I just I think we have to go through a lot sometimes to find our strength you know what I mean like we get very pressed and so it's it all you know we all get to our place I feel grateful that I went through the things I went through to enable me to like write that conversation and be less afraid right like so that's that's, be um, less afraid yeah 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 look where you are and and we can't wait to see where you're going and we definitely cannot wait to see the television show when it hits and And everything else oh when when does olga come out in paperback back um it should be this winter probably like february i think um yeah i think we're thinking february and then um hopefully the new book will come out like either late 23 or early 24. So that's, um, yeah, but I'm like loving it. It's like, I'm really, I don't know. It's, it's super different, but it's also very, they're cousins. They're definitely cousins. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cousins, shout out to Mabel. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. I love her. I love her. Um, It's so good to meet you both. And thank you again so much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.